As you turn your Bibles here to the book of Exodus chapter 3, the next few chapters are some of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible having to do with how God calls a man to accomplish his work. And God is going to move in the life of Moses and raise him up to be a leader to the children of Israel. Uh, And be not mistaken here that it was... God that delivered the people out of Egyptian bondage, it was not Moses. Um, However, Moses, I think we have to um, agree with the Bible that Moses was God's instrument to bring about this wonderful deliverance. So yes, it is God that has done it, uh, that did it, but it is also God choosing to use Moses to do it. And that is truly a a remarkable thing. If we think about ourselves, in the New Testament, the Bible says that we are co-laborers together with God, that God is doing a work in this world, and yet He chooses to use human instrumentality to accomplish His work. That's a wonderful thing, and it's a privilege for all of us. And so here in Exodus chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now, there's a lot of things that are happening over the next two chapters, but we're going to begin with what I would refer to as we look at the life of Moses. We ended chapter 2 with getting an understanding that Moses was content to dwell with his father-in-law Jethro. He he was fine. He, uh, He was a shepherd. He was content to be there. He didn't want to be moved. He didn't want to go to Egypt. He, he was content to be there. And so chapter 3 is uh, God stepping in in the life of Moses and what I would refer to as God disturbing a comfortable life. That's what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 3. God is going to disturb a comfortable life. You know, we need to rem- be reminded that this world is not our home. And sometimes we get to the place where we might be comfortable in this world. But we have to be reminded that God wants to disrupt our lives because He's got something much more important. And sometimes it will mean our inconvenience. Now, think about it. Moses here, he's content to be uh, in uh, serving his father-in-law in the land of Midian. Now he's on the backside of the desert in chapter 3. But think about how peaceful his life is. He is uh, watching over sheep. He is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of complaining. You know, sheep can't talk. They can't complain to Moses. And, and so as we look at this here, what his, God is going to move in the life of Moses to do what? To bring him about to a people who are going to complain. He's going to go to Egypt in the midst of chaos, of opposition, of... Uh, Uh, If you would, going back to Egypt would be a a difficulty for him. And yet God wants to take him from his comfortable place and use him, but that's going to mean making him uncomfortable. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to be inconvenienced for the work of God? So notice Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for... I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, 
and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large and a land flowing with milk and honey and unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now we'll stop there and the reason why I'm stopping here is because up to this point God has said nothing to Moses about what he wants him to do. Up to this point, as we read in the chapter, God has only told Moses what he is going to do. Uh, and now this first part is important here because God is, is, going to, is speaking here to Moses and he tells Moses what he's going to do. And he's going to turn after, from verse 9 through the remainder of the chapter, he's going to then tell Moses, and I want you to go. But up to this point here, we don't see that. So let's pretend that we don't know that God is going to call Moses to go. All we know is what God is going to do to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, and He is letting Moses know that. And so we'll stop there. But I want to preach this evening a message that I have entitled, When God Disturbs a Comfortable Life. When God Disturbs a Comfortable Life. I'm going to look at three things in the life of Moses as we look at the first part of chapter 3. First of all, we're going to talk about how Moses was contented. He, he was fine where he was, but yet we're going to see secondly that Moses was confronted. God is going to confront Moses in the backside of the desert with a burning bush experience. He's going to confront him and, and speak to him and reveal himself to him. And then lastly, we're going to look at Moses was Comforted. God is going to give a number of things to Moses that's going to certainly provide much comfort to him. So notice, first of all, as we look at our text, we see that Moses was contented. As we begin in verse 1, the Bible tells us, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And as we read here in our text, we have a, a, a statement about the life of Moses. What, what is Moses doing? Now, remember, this is a peculiar place to find Moses. Mo Moses uh, grew up in Egypt. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He uh, saw himself some 40 years prior as the deliverer for the nation of Israel. And uh, he uh, attempted to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt in his own strength. Uh, no doubt, but at least he had tried something. But now this is some 40 years later, and we find kind of a summary statement about the life of Moses. And Moses seems to be content to be where he is. Uh, he is a shepherd. He is under his father-in-law. He's on the backside of the desert. Can you imagine here? I mean, this is, uh, the, uh, well, I'll describe the place in just a moment. This is a beautiful place. Uh, now, I know some people, and sometimes some preachers, and I've heard them say, man, how... Uh, stupid was Moses to uh, take a flock to the backside of the desert. Well, we have to understand that desert in those places means a place without people, not necessarily a place without any greenery or water. Uh, and so Moses is not stupid, as some maybe preachers have portrayed. He is a very smart man. As a matter of fact, he is exactly in the best place that he could take any flock at that time. Uh, the mountain of Horeb. I'll talk about this mountain in just a moment. But we have a describing statement here where, can you see Moses enjoying the, the flocks? He is in the beautiful mountains of Horeb. It's called the mountain of God. And he's having a great time. I, I would no doubt love to go uh, back at that place and to say, I I'd like to take a hike up there and to watch over the sheep. This would be a wonderful time. And so we have this general statement. And in other words, Nothing is going to happen to Moses. He is away from everybody. He is away from any distractions. And it's a peaceful life. And yet God is going to step in in this moment. Now, remember it's been 40 years. It was 40 years that Moses has been here in the land of Midian and been serving his father-in-law. But let's try to go back 40 years prior because here when God intervenes in the life of Moses... There are a number of things that happened before God would call on Moses to lead the children out of Egyptian bondage. I want you to notice several things. When we think about uh, Moses being contented, uh, something has happened. There's a background for us that shows us, okay, what happened? What are the circumstances wherewith God was the time for God to raise up Moses and to call Moses to go 
and to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. Well, first of all, what is mentioned for us is the death of the king. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 23, at the end here, when we find that Moses uh, married and he had children, the Bible says in verse 23 of chapter 2, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. That's the first thing that we know. Before God intervenes, we learn at the end of chapter 2 that the Egyptian king, remember, who sought the life of Moses, has died. This would be a significant event for God now, uh, thinking, the, uh, thinking at the proper time for him to get a hold of Moses and to have him go back to the land of Egypt because the man who sought his life and the man who would have power to take his life is no longer the king. We also notice a second thing in chapter 2, verse 23, and that, and that is not only the death of the king, but also the groaning of the children of Israel. Verse 23 says that uh, in the process of time, the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Now remember, we just saw in uh, chapter 2 earlier that, uh, that uh, Moses tried to help the children of Israel, but they refused him as their deliverer. In other words, in Moses' first attempt, the people did not accept him. Remember, they said, who made thee a king and a ruler over us? You're not in charge. In other words, what that tells us is that the children of Israel were not ready to leave. At, at some point, Moses revealed himself to them and said, look, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to deliver you. God has raised me up. God has called me to do this. And so therefore, I want to help you. And the children of Israel says, well, he hasn't told us. And so you're not king and ruler over us. And so what we learn is that the people were not ready. But at the end of chapter 2, before God speaks to Moses, through the process of time, we see the groaning of the children of Israel. In other words, I think that now, after the death of the king of Egypt, it's not getting easy, easier. But we see here that the sighing of the people by reason of the bondage, the groanings of the people, I think that now the people of Israel are ready to leave. You see, we've learned in our past lessons here that uh, God had multiplied them and made them a mighty nation. They were comfortable in the land. God allowed them to be in bondage. Why? Because if God had not allowed them to be in bondage, they would have never left the land. It's the best part of the land of Egypt. Why would they leave? You remember when they complained later in the wilderness. They said, oh, would, that, would to God that we could go back to the land of Egypt and have the, the, the figs and the garlic and the spices and all the things that we enjoy there. Why? They had the best part of the land. They enjoyed it. And so God made things uncomfortable for them. But yet when Moses first attempted to deliver them, they were not ready. They were still too comfortable. But now we find in verse 23 that something has changed. God hears the groaning of the children of Israel. We see the death of the king, the groaning of the children of Israel. But what else do we see when, when we think about Moses here being in the land? Something's happening in the background. Moses doesn't know, but the king has died, and the people are sighing and the groaning. They want God to deliver them. Moses doesn't know, though. He's in tranquility on the backside of the desert, at peace, undisturbed. But then we also see through the process of time, the change in the life of Moses. Now, this is another 40 years. You remember, 40 years prior, he had tried on his own strength to deliver the people out of Egyptian bondage, and, and nothing uh, worked at that time. But now this is 40 years later. So there are certain things that have changed in the life of Moses. And what we learn in the Bible is these are the things that have changed. First of all, the strength of his youth is gone. Right? He is now been a shepherd, and he is 80 years of age, around 80 years of age. Last time that he was in Egypt was when he was 40 years of age. Now, I'm approaching 40. How many of you are in the 40 realm? Okay. How many of you are in the 80 realm? Okay, close. Is there a difference between the 40s and the 80s? Yeah, there's a big difference. Would we not think here that after 40 years... That when God is about to intervene in the life of Moses, the strength of his youth was gone. I don't think that Moses quite in his 80s could fight as he did in his 40s when he killed that Egyptian man. I don't think he has that strength anymore. At least it's waned some bit. And so that's how a change that's happened in the life of Moses. And yet, God saw fit through the process of time to wait till Moses was 80. 
We also notice, secondly, the wisdom of the Egyptian was dissipated. And what I mean by that is when you read, when Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, he says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And sometimes some people say, well, there seems to be a conflict because later in chapter 3, Moses says, I, I can't speak. I'm not good of speech. And, but let's remember, it's been 40, 40 years. And what I'm saying to us is that the wisdom of the Egyptians and the things of him being in the court daily, arguing with people and making speeches, now he has been watching sheep, not talking a whole lot. I grew up in the country of France, and many of you know uh, that was my first language. That's why sometimes I say a few words and you, you can, yeah, your accent is a little different. Sometimes people say that. Now, that was my first language. Now I went to school, I, I, I learned English, and I was very comfortable with French. It was my first language. When I came to the state when I was, States when I was 16 years old, I struggled with the English. I could barely read and I could barely write. I could speak it, but I could barely read and write. And so uh, after a few years, then English became my first language. But then as I'm thinking about my French, last time I went to France, my dad asked me to preach in the church, and I had a very difficult time. It was strange for me because French used to be my first language. But I hadn't practiced it in some eight years. So the knowledge that I had of the French language over time not being practiced had dissipated. And so Moses, who was learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians, had no doubt some oratory skills, now finds himself in chapter 3 when he tells God, I, I can't speak. He hasn't done it for 40 years. And so we would think that, well, God, why wouldn't you use Moses when he is at his best at 40 no, some things has changed. The strength of his youth was gone. The wisdom of the Egyptian was dissipated. Uh, we, uh, and by the way, you know, Jesus Christ, he talked to the Sadducees and the Pharisees who thought themselves always wiser than everybody else. But Jesus told them this. He says, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in sight of God. You see, perhaps Moses thought 30 or 40 years before that because of his oratory skills, because of his wisdom, he could kind of scheme his way and deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But that's not what God was intent on doing. You see, God did not need the wisdom of the Egyptians to deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So we see the strength of his youth was gone, the wisdom of the Egyptian was dissipated, but we also see that the distance to the people was unconducive. In other words, 40 years prior, where was he? He was in Egypt. Where is he now? He is in, in the land of Midian, we could say, in the backside of the desert, which would be the Sinai Peninsula. So it's, about a, a, it's closer to Egypt, but it's still about a three days journey from Egypt. And so uh, Moses here is, uh, in other words, the place where he is is not conducive, the distance is not conducive for the children of Israel to be delivered. You see, Mount Horeb, where Moses was here, was located in the Sinai Peninsula. This place was properly called the backside of the desert. Now, uh, uh, people say, well, what's the backside of the desert? Well, we come to understand that the Bible, when the Bible gives directions, the idea is someone, when some directions are given in the Bible, is, I don't know if this is, but I want you to think, if, if I'm standing in front of you, when they gave directions, east was how they stood. And so when the Bible, when you read, uh, you know, they uh, went left or they went right, if you're standing, let me just say, uh, how can I do this? Okay, so let's just say that this is north, this is west, this is east, and this is south. And so when uh, they gave directions in the Bible, they, all were, they were always looking east. And so when they're looking east, that means that you go straight. When they, the direction of the Bible is go straight, that means go east. When they said go right, that means go south. Go left, it means goes north. Go backwards, it means goes west. So when you read, the Bible says that he is on the backside of the desert. If you think about the land of Midian was east of Egypt, the backside of the desert would be west of the land of Midian. And that's where you find the Sinai Peninsula. And so that's why what is meant here by the backside of the desert. Compared to the land of Midian, which is east, it is the backside of where he dwelt during that time. The Bible says here that not only is the, this is the mountain of God even to Horeb. 
Now, uh, after this encounter in Egypt, Moses is going to go back to the land of Midian, uh, talk to his father-in-law and his wife, and then as he's going to make his way to Egypt, God is going to call Aaron to meet Moses out in the wilderness, where? At the mountain of God, the same place where Moses met the Lord. Notice if you go to Exodus chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, 24, and it came to pass by the way in the end that the Lord met with met him and sought to kill him. But Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it in his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. Uh, so he let him go. Then he said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. That had nothing to do with what I'm about to read. But verse 27, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. So again, after the backside of the desert, desert compared to Midian, uh, Moses goes back to Midian. On his way to Egypt, he has to go through Horeb again. And Aaron from Egypt came and met him at the mountain of God. And then they both headed to Egypt together. Now, the mountain Horeb here was an area, was a good area, a good place for a shepherd to take his flock during uh, several times during the year. I was reading a few, uh, basically, historians and commentaries about this area. Uh, one commentator said that in certain seasons of the year, the best pasturage in the Sinaitic Peninsula is to be found on the slopes of the highest mountains of Horeb. Uh, Ros Mueller writes, he says, we find, we will find the most fertile valleys in which even fruit trees grow. Water abounds in this district. Consequently, it is the resort of all of the uh, 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 Des Moines when the lower countries are dried up. And so this would be a wonderful place to take uh, the, the sheep and to take the flock. And so Moses did that. And again, he is far away from Egypt. He is not in the place of deliverance, but that's exactly where God is going to take him from. So that's changed in the life of Moses. The strength of his youth is gone. The wisdom of the Egyptian was dissipated. The distance from the people was unconducive. But fourthly, the humility of the work was preparatory. Now, I think we're familiar with the culture of the Egyptians compared to the culture of the Jews. Moses, the Bible says, was learned uh, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and so he knew, no doubt he knew, that the task of being a shepherd was despised among the Egyptians. Uh, you remember when uh, Joseph was in the land of Egypt and he brought in his father and all of his brothers. He basically told them, now don't tell the Pharaoh that you're shepherds because he says in Genesis 46 verse 34, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So, Moses is doing something that is the exact opposite of what he grew up to be. And a matter of fact, the task that he is doing is that which, how he grew up, was completely, was considered to the Egyptians an abomination. You don't do that. We don't do that as Egyptians. Now remember when he went to the land of Midian, you remember when they, uh, the, the sisters were, were helped by Moses, remember what they told uh, their father, an Egyptian delivered us? So he probably had the garb or had the appearance of an Egyptian. Uh, probably his clothing, Vesher, gave him away. Uh, but the point is, now he has become a shepherd, an Egyptian that became a shepherd. And, and notice here, this would be uh, the, the humility. There was, this would be a great source of humility for Moses to go from uh, being uh, revered for all the wisdom that he had in Egypt for being admired uh, for his uh, winsomeness and his oratory skills. And what we find now is he's a shepherd in the backside of the desert, in the mountains by himself. And we, we might think, or let me say, the world might think, man, that's a wasted life. What are you doing with yourself, Moses? You've been learned. You've been trained. You know how to behave. You know how to sit at a table. Uh, you know how to... And here you're, you're doing uh, one of the worst jobs that we could ever think of in the world. Well, I think that no doubt that the, the humility of the work was preparatory for Moses. You know, the Bible says that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, he led the flock to the backside of the desert. 
You know, if Moses was going to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage, he was going to have to lead them. You remember 40 years ago what he, he tried to do? He tried to force something. He tried to kill a man. He tried to get them to, to force them to say, I am your deliverer. But there was no validation from God. In other words, anybody could have come up and say, well, God is, uh, wants me to do this. Uh, but what Moses would learn in, in the backside of the desert is how to lead. You say, well, you know, sheep are not like people. Yes, but I think that one of the greatest things that God does in bringing about someone who leads is to bring him through a time of humility. Because someone cannot truly lead unless they first have been humbled by God. You know, that's why even Paul wrote to Timothy, he says that the man who is a bishop of the church should not, um, uh, should, uh, you know, what's the, what's the word? Um, not a novice lest he, being lifted up with pride, fall into the condemnation of the devil. So in other words, what is he saying? He said there, there has to be a period where, where, where a man is humbled by God. And certainly this would do that for, for Moses for 40 years. Now, now think about the contrast in lifestyles. For 40 years in Egypt, the palace, the courts, the wisdom, the education, the accolades, the debates, all the things, everybody being amazed at Moses. And now... He's in the backside of the desert. It's silent. No one's looking up to him. No one's listening to what he has to say. That is a humbling time in the life of Moses. And so we find here that when we think about Moses here was contended, understand what was going on in the background. And probably Moses didn't even realize it. But the king died. The people began to groan and to cry out to God. And changes were happening in the life of Moses that were necessary for God to prepare him so that he could intervene in his life and be ready. So we see here that Moses was contended, but then we move to the second part here of, of our text, and we see that Moses was confronted. And so verse 1, we see that Moses, his life, and we know that God is in the background. He's been preparing Moses, although perhaps Moses doesn't even know. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great side, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. So Moses here is going to be confronted. Something is going to happen in his life uh, that's going to turn everything around. He's going to go from the peaceful hills of Horeb to opposition in Egypt. And, and by the way, God is going to tell Moses in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that when he goes to Pharaoh and tells him to let the people go, Pharaoh is going to say no. How would you like to sign up for that job? Uh, God would even tell Moses that the people are going to complain. How would you like to take that job? Moses, you're going to leave the peaceful hills and the peaceful sheep of the mountains of Horeb because I want you to confront the Pharaoh and I want you to lead the people out of the Egyptian bondage. Let me ask us this. Let's just think of the flesh for just a moment. Would any of us want to do that? No. Not, not, I'm talking in the flesh. Well, God says so. Yeah, but we really wouldn't want to do it. Not for the life we have now. Not for the life that Moses had now. But yet, God is going to confront Moses and God wants to use Moses to do something that is greater than Moses. He wants to raise up a leader 
He wants to disturb Moses. He wants to disturb his comfortable life and make Moses uncomfortable so that God could be glorified and so that God could do a great work. So we have to ask ourselves this question then when we, as we proceed. Are we more interested in the glory of God than in our present comfort? What is it that we are more interested in? The glory of God or our present comfort? So notice here, Moses was confronted. And so we read here, I want you to notice several things. First of all, we see a disruption in his life. Now, verse 2 says that the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. Now, I believe this to be a Christophany, a pre-appearance of Jesus Christ. The reason why I say that is because the angel of the Lord, the Bible says in verse 4, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside, the Lord spake unto him. And, and so here I believe the angel of the Lord to be Jesus Christ speaking unto him out of the midst of the bush. And so here we find that the Bible says, notice, verse 2, and the angel appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So, I would imagine that Moses, as he kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, in the backside of the desert, that he probably didn't have any weird encounters, for the most part. It was a calm life. But Moses is going to see something that is out of the ordinary. He's going to catch something, and this is not in full sight as you read the text. Uh, the Bible says that um, he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And verse 3, and Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. And so he probably caught it, and then he thought to himself, he made a decision to say, well, let me investigate. Let me find out what this is all about, because this is not normal. Now, again, I say this, what God wants to do in our lives is not normal to the world. You know, we, we go through our lives and the world lives this life and we, we have our lives and we live our lives. And when God wants to get our attention, it is out of the ordinary because it doesn't happen in the world. Right? Now, now, we're not talking here about, certainly, God uh, speaks uh, to men and convicts men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're talking about God's call on the man's life to do His will. And, and so here, uh, Moses here is obviously, uh, he is disrupted in his life. And we need to be willing to be disrupted in our lives from our comfortable lives, from our comfortable lifestyle, and to investigate and say, God, are you leading me, are you leading me to do something? What is it that you have for me, Lord? And so, uh, he was uh, disrupted in his life, but then we see a divine revelation in his life. And so, there are several things here about God revealing himself to Moses. Verse 2 tells us that, and I guess you could say there are three aspects of this divine revelation. First of all, we see a bush burning with fire, but not being consumed. Then we see a voice speaking from the bush. It's interesting, even the Bible doesn't say, not a voice speaking from the fire, but speaking from the bush. And then thirdly, we see the place. Um, so Moses is going to see the burning bush, not being burning with fire, not being consumed. He's going to hear the voice speaking from the midst of the bush. And as he's drawn near, the voice says, take off the shoes from off thy feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, I believe this is important here because in this divine revelation, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in, in this first part, when God reveals Himself to Moses, He's going to say absolutely nothing about what He expects of Moses. He's not going to tell Moses right off the bat, Now, Moses, I'm coming to you right now because I want you to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. I know you've been waiting for 40 years to do this, and so now is the time for me to, uh, 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 to use you to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. And so, uh, are you ready, Moses? That's not what He does. First of all, God chooses to first of all uh, uh, show Moses and reveal to Moses who he is. You see, before there can be any service for God, there has to be a good understanding of God. And here, uh, God, before he, he's going to tell Moses what he wants of him, he's going to tell Moses something about himself. Now, 
The first thing that we learn about God here in this portion is in this divine revelation is that is God appearing to him in a bush that is burning with fire and not yet not being consumed. And so often people have said, well, what is that a representation of? Now, the word bush here is a word, uh, the word has the idea of like, it would be the typical bush that would be found in the mountains of Horeb, which had thorns on it. And it would kind of be like just a small, you know, it's not, it's not like a, a huge trunk tree that rises like the cedars of Lebanon up in the sky. It's a little shrub in the desert. It's interesting to me that God doesn't appear to Moses uh, and he's, that God looks for the mightiest tree out or he, he lights up the mountain. No, there's a little shrub over here, a little bush, a thorny bush that is burning. Why, why would God do that? Well, when you uh, uh, go, could turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4. A little later, Deuteronomy chapter 4. What can we say about this burning bush? What is it all about? A bush that is burning and not being consumed. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we know that Moses here uh, gives the word from the Lord to the children of Israel. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, notice what is said about them and their bondage before. Uh, he says, verse 20, Deuteronomy 4.20, But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be with him a people of inheritance as ye are this day. So notice here, later, Moses says that God brought you out of the iron furnace. Now, it's interesting because when we find the scene of the burning bush, the bush is burning but is not being consumed. Perhaps that is a picture of the children of Israel who are in bondage, who are in affliction, but not consumed. Uh, because later Moses said, look, you, you came out of that furnace, you came out of that fire, and yet God preserved you through all the affliction of the Egyptians. So perhaps the burning bush is a, is a, is a picture of that. Uh, we also know, however, in the book of Hebrews, for example, the very last verse, uh, well, let's turn there, book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I think the uh, that uh, leading up to that last verse in the book of Hebrews will uh, give us uh, some insight here as uh, God speaks. Notice Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Notice verse 25. Uh, the Bible says here, Hebrews 12, 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven whose voice then shook the earth. Now he's talking back at uh, Exodus chapter 20 when the law was given. That's the context of this chapter. But now he hath promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signified the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, the context is God speaking. Don't refuse when God speaks. He is speaking to you. Don't hear His voice. And in the context of that, He says that God is a consuming fire. So it's interesting to think about uh, God speaking and yet God being a consuming fire. But as we think about Exodus chapter 3, we see that the bush is burning but is not being consumed. And so God, who is righteous and holy, who should, who should devour the sinner... Yet He speaks to us as a consuming fire, but He doesn't destroy. He is a God of justice and judgment and righteousness and holiness, and yet He doesn't rid man immediately because He's wicked. Remember that bush has thorns, but yet that bush is not being consumed. Perhaps it is a message here that as Moses approaches the bush, that God is a righteous and a holy God but yet He is a God of grace and mercy because He doesn't consume Moses at the very sight of Moses, who is a sinner. But perhaps we could uh, think about the words of Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus Christ refers to 
this burning bush experience that Moses experienced. And notice what Jesus said. This is most interesting. Luke chapter 20. Uh, notice here. Now, um, here, he, the context, he's talking about the Sadducees. There's a debate. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But notice what he tells them. Uh, let's uh, pick it up. Luke chapter 20. Verse 34, And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Now Jesus is referring to that experience and he says, Moses showed us something in that bush, and that is what? That God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so although the fire is burning and it's, uh, it's burning that bush, the bush is not consumed. Why? Because God is a God of, uh, of the living and not the dead. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That, that God uh, should consume us, should consume wickedness, but yet He is the God of the living and so He offers pardon to all. Certainly there's a picture of salvation there. Jesus Christ spoke of that Himself in the context of the resurrection. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 2. So we see here in this divine revelation that God manifests Himself to Moses in a burning bush that's burning with fire, but yet not being consumed. In other words, it's a perplexing scene. But then we see, secondly, the voice from the bush. So there's not only a sight for Moses to see, but then there's a voice that speaks to Moses. And so notice as we keep reading... Uh, chapter 3, notice verse 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And so the voice speaks to Moses. The voice coming from the midst of the bush. Hmm. The Bible says it's the angel of the Lord, it's the Lord speaking the Lord is speaking not from the fire, but from the bush. You know, the Bible mentions that Jesus Christ is the root out of a dry ground. In other words, we expect nothing from that. And so the angel of the Lord was speaking from the bush, not from the fire. I believe fire represents God in His holiness and His righteousness. But perhaps the bush, the thorny bush, represents Jesus Christ who speaks to us who bore our sins, the thorns and the thistles of our life. He bore that for us in the midst, but yet He was not consumed like we would be. And so, He sees this sight. The voice speaks to Moses from the bush. And then we find that uh, the Lord says in verse 4, And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, Here am I. In verse 5, And said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now this is very important here because this is fundamental to Moses serving God. He, God has still said nothing to Moses. He didn't say to Moses, I'm going to use you to do something. He didn't say any of that. He just said to Moses, now stop right now. There's something I want you to do before you come any closer, Moses. I cannot allow you to come in this place because it's holy ground. Now, we know that if Moses picked up a handful of dirt, there is nothing holy about the dirt itself. Uh, the reason why, certainly, uh, the, the, it would be a normal tradition for Moses if, if he would uh, 
uh, go into his father-in-law's tent, before he went into his father-in-law's tent, it would be the proper behavior or custom for him to take off his shoes. Why? Because the shoes, those sandal-like shoes would catch in the dirt. And so as you're flapping those uh, sandals in the house, it's just putting dirt everywhere. And so it was the custom to take those shoes off. And so in other words, don't. It, it's, the idea of the custom is don't bring the filth from outside the house, inside the house. It represents defilement and sin. And so God says to Moses, before you come any closer, you need to take your shoes off. That's uh, symbolic. In other words, all of Moses is dirty. But God wants Moses to know that he is holy. You see, God makes Moses aware. Now, isn't it interesting? It isn't interesting that before anything is said to Moses, before we can proceed any further, before there is a call to serve God, God wants Moses to know that the basis of him revealing himself to Moses is his holiness. Moses, you're not going to go any further. I'm not going to speak any further until you first of all recognize and you do so in a practical way where you take off your shoes from your feet and proceed any further because before we do anything else, you have to be aware that I am a holy God and I cannot dwell in the midst of sinners. You know, by the way, that is the basis of all service for God. Before we can serve God, there has to be an awareness that He is holy. You see, that affects then every part of our service, doesn't it? If we serve a holy God, then everything we do has to be with the consciousness that God is holy. You know, what has happened in our modern Christianity? There is a refusal or a lack of awareness of the holiness of God that is evident. Nobody wants to talk about the holiness of God. No one, anybody wants to talk about the fact that God is holy and righteous and that He cannot abide sin and that He hates sin so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for the sin debt of all mankind. And we live in a Christianity that, that seems that, well, we're, we're going to be okay with sin. God just loves us as we are. No, He does not. Because He has never ex- accepted you as you are. That's why He sent Christ to die for your sins on the cross of Calvary. Because He did not accept you as you were. Yep. Amen. And so He wants Moses to know that. Like, before we do anything else, Moses, you have to recognize that I am holy. Everything we do for God has... First of all, uh, is found its, find, will find its find foundation in the fact that God, the God that we serve, is a holy God. I wonder, is it that maybe God does not speak to us any further because we are refusing to acknowledge the fact that He is holy? This is not the only time that God would do this. He would do this with Joshua. He would do this with several other times. That before He speaks to men, He wants them to recognize that He is holy. Could it be that God will only speak to us after we recognize this fundamental truth that He is holy? He is a holy God. So we see a divine revelation. The bush burning fire, not being consumed, the bush not being consumed, the voice from the bush, and also the place where Moses was standing was holy ground. It was not holy ground because the ground was holy. It was holy ground because God was there. That's what made the ground holy. But then we see, lastly, Moses was not only, for first of all, Moses was contented, Moses was confronted, and lastly, Moses was comforted. So, He's still not going to tell Moses right off the bat what he wants, but he's going to remind Moses of who he is. Notice verse 5. And he said, uh, verse 5, Draw on thy hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where on thou standest is holy ground. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So, uh, God, he comforted Moses by the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. He tells Moses, 
I am the God of thy father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What is, what is that referring to? Well, to the covenant that was given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac and passed on to Jacob, from which the 12 tribes came. Uh, that's a covenant-keeping God. And so it's interesting that it is then uh, that Moses, he hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And, and understand here, I, I don't think that the idea here is that he was uh, so afraid that he wanted to run off, is that he, he, he I think at that moment he, re he realized, who is it that was talking to him? Why? Well... Because up to this point, Moses has been undisturbed. He's fine. Forty years earlier, he tried to deliver the covenant people out of Egyptian bondage. And now, God reminds Moses, I am the covenant-keeping God. So immediately, what would that do to Moses? Probably for the strongest time since the last 40 years, he would think back to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are in Egyptian bondage. And so now he realizes, who is it that's talking to him? It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Verse 7, so here we see that Moses was comforted by the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God, but also he was comforted by the fact that God is an all-seeing God. Verse 7, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now, this kind of gets my attention because I'm thinking here, Moses is sitting here, it's been 40 years since he's been in Egypt, and then God appears to uh, Moses, uh, and he speaks to him from a burning bush that's not being consumed. He tells him that he is the God of his father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then immediately he says, look, I have seen the affliction of the people, I have heard their cry, and I know their sorrow. Let's go back 40 years before. Do you know who saw the affliction of the people? Moses. Wasn't that, that what motivated him? He saw one of his brethren being mistreated by an Egyptian, and then he killed that Egyptian. He saw, he heard the cry of that Egyptian brother, and in a sense, we could say that he, he could sympathize with that sorrow. That's been 40 years. And don't you think that maybe Moses, for the last 40 years, since he had to leave Egypt, that he probably thought to himself, well, look, I, I was there, I, I saw, I, I knew, I had compassion on them, and I tried to do something, but nothing happened, and God didn't bless, and God didn't deliver. And he, did you think maybe he asked himself, where was God? Where was God 40 years ago? When I saw what I saw, when I heard what I heard, and when I felt what I felt, where was God then? And here God tells Moses, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. I believe that brought comfort to Moses. He probably thought to himself for the last 40 years, where was God 40 years ago? Did he not hear? Did he not see? Did he not know? Can I encourage you tonight? God has seen, God has heard, and God knows. That's a great comfort, isn't it? That our Lord Jesus Christ is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. For He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And sometimes we may think, well, nobody knows and nobody understands what I'm going through. Let me assure you, that God knows and God does understand. And so here Moses probably was comforted by that. But then there's another thing he probably was comforted by. He was comforted by the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God, by the fact that God is an all-seeing God, but also he comforted by the fact that God is a delivering God. Notice verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them. Now again, let's forget the fact we know the rest of the chapter. Moses at this point, he's probably thinking, oh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
you remember the prophecy that was given to Abraham that the children of Israel would go into a strange land and they would be there for 400 years and then God would bring them out? So he, Moses is probably thinking at this point here, this is good. This is the, the covenant-keeping God and he's telling me this. And now I, I know that, that God, not just like me 40 years ago, but now today God has seen and he has heard and he knows and now God is telling me that he is coming down to deliver them. That's wonderful news. And it is. That's all Moses knows. What great comfort for Moses to know that God is going to intervene in his life or on behalf of the children of Israel as he had 40 years ago but failed. And he said here he's going to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and a large into a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He says in verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is, Come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. In verse 10, Come now therefore, I will send thee. Well, wait. Wait a minute. You just said, This is your covenant, God. Um, this, is, this is your people. You have said, you've heard, you've seen, and you know. And you've said that you're going to deliver them. Why do you need me? You just do what you want to do, God. But please, not me. That's never the way God has operated. God says to Moses, Moses, this is what I'm going to do. So, I want you to be involved. Would you be involved in this, Moses? Lest we forget, this would be a very difficult road for Moses. And we're going to read the remainder of the chapter next week, but th this is going to be difficult. In Egypt, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult bringing them out of Egyptian bondage through the wilderness wanderings going to be difficult. And by the way, Moses is never going to enter into the land. After all of that, God says you're not going in. So, I guess the question for us tonight is at the end of the day, what are we interested in? You know, I think I think everybody with a heart for the Lord says, I, I want God to work. I, you know, I want God to do work. I think every, every Christian, sincerely from his heart, would say that. And certainly we would all say that. But often what happens is we want God to do a work, but sometimes we're not willing to be part of it because it means that we're going to be inconvenienced. That we're going to go through difficulties, that we're going to go through trouble, and, and we, we might think to ourselves, well, you know, look, I'm, ready, I'm willing to serve God as long as it means my comfort. And the truth is, based on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is, there is, and this is the truth from God's Word, not the prosperity gospel, the truth is, is that there is no easy way to follow Jesus Christ and to serve Him. There is no easy way to do that. It's difficult. But, it's worth it. In the midst of all those difficulties, it's worth it. Why? And here, here's why it's worth it. At the end of the day, you remember when Moses died? He died and God raised up Joshua. And God's work continues. And so for the short life of Moses, God used Moses to do something let me ask you this. What, what about if he had spent the rest of his life in the backside of the desert? Happy, content, undisturbed. You know, don't want to... Just content to be where he is. The truth is, the life of Moses is a declaration that God was glorified. The Egyptian plagues, 
God was glorified. The opening of the Red Sea, God was glorified. The manna from heaven, God was glorified. Bring the people into the promised land, God was glorified. You see, it's all about God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we are interested in? Our comfort or His glory? Uh, look, I, I'm not going to pretend that that's not a struggle. I believe that's a struggle for all of us. But um, we see a, a scene here when God disturbs a comfortable life. And so if God speaks to us and wants us to do things and maybe wants us to step up in certain areas in service for Him, let's just do it and be faithful where God wants us to be and serve Him so that He can be glorified. You see, God didn't have to use us, but He chose to use us for His glory. And that's a privilege. And so let's count it a privilege. Let's pray.